0: Hi, everybody. This is Kira from KiraWilliamsFitness.com, and I have the pleasure to interview Jillian Tita this morning. Um, For those of you guys who've been following me on social media, you guys know that I've been obsessing over her book, Natural Solutions for Digestive Health. Um, So I'm going to go ahead and let Jillian take it away and introduce herself and let us know about her education and her background and what she does.
1: Oh, hey, Kira. Thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate this. And hello to all of your listeners. Um, Gosh, I don't really know where to start. So I work with folks with um, digestive problems and am very active in writing about digestive problems and creating programs as such. And my background is I'm a medically trained naturopathic physician, so sort of like an integrative slash functional medical provider. And over the years, what we see is just so many folks have digestive distress that it was actually them who sort of came to me. It was what who showed up at the clinic. And so we began, like, working with good, like, integrative protocols, got fabulous results, word spread. Uh, I got on social media. That all sort of led to a book deal. That all sort of led to, like, word of mouth exchange, like, hey, this This girl is like really good with digestion and, you know, and then here we are.
0: (laughs) So what, so that's what kind of really got you so interested in it to make that like really your specialty because there are so many people that are having these problems.
1: Yes, it's unbelievable the amount of folks who just started showing up and everybody had some particular flavor of digestive distress from a broader perspective. You know, I've been trained as a biologist, as an environmental biologist, and when we look at the gut and its relationship to the whole body, the gut, is, it's kind of like an ecological landscape sort of in and of itself, and it has impact and influence on every other system of the body. So it's actually really fascinating to nerd out about those connections. Um, what was the last thing you just said you cut out for a second i said it's fascinating to nerd out on those connections like between the gut and different aspects of the body and of the human health
0: so yeah, just totally random i just thought about this but the I mean, people were people coming to you with like different different problems and saying like this is my symptom and this is my symptom And then with a little bit more research and investigation on your part, you come to realize, like, hey, this might be actually a digestive issue more so than anything else.
1: Yes, this is a fabulous example of someone that I might see. So a woman comes in, and she has some acne, and she's getting headaches, and she's experiencing increased symptoms of PMS, so like her breaths are really tender, her mood, you know, her moods are a little bit out of control, a little bit worse than what we would associate with normal PMS, and so this woman has been to her gynecologist to go, uh, you know, get on like birth control pills to so see if you can regulate her cycle, she goes to the neurologist for her headache, she goes to the dermatologist for her acne, and what all of those docs do is they'll give her something you know, whatever, antibiotics or, or you know, topical creams for her acne, you know, headache medicine for her headaches, birth control pills, when if they asked a little bit more direct or deeper questions and found out that this woman was constipated, what they would be more interested in is actually getting her to poop and move her bowels regularly because just pooping would solve or greatly help many of those seemingly disparate, issues that are going on. So so yes, the fact that we're able to spend more time with folks, figure out exactly what's going on, can be extremely beneficial and spare people like having to get on medication unnecessarily.
0: So I would have never thought to ask somebody to ask you that question or even thought for one second that, you know, I would have been that kind of person who would have been in her position where where I would have been like, okay, let's go get on the pill. Let's go get some acne medication. But now after having read your book, I look at it like, okay, well, maybe, you know, it has something to do with my diet or maybe it has something to do with my digestive system. So it's like just reading this book has opened my eyes to see the things that you do and so I feel like. I just feel like I'm mentally more educated, and so for those of you guys who haven't read the book yet, you totally need to check it out, and I'm providing a link um, along with this call, so that way you guys will definitely be able to get that book um, on Amazon like I did. Um, And then, so I just, we're going to skip over the process of how the digestive system works, um, because if you want to know how it works, guys, check out the book she goes into depth with how it works and it's really fascinating it's kind of like seventh grade health class again but how it's like applicable for us now as adults which is really awesome um but i really want to like reinforce exactly how important gut health is to the listeners um so you actually jillian you call the gut the second brain
1: what do you mean by that Well, so here's the thing. The gut actually contains our second brain. The second brain is this vast network of nerve tissue, of nerve cells, that begins at the base of our esophagus and goes all the way down through our stomach, through the small intestine, through the large intestine, all the way down to our rectum. So this nervous tissue is so great and so dense that it is equal only to the spinal cord, right? So this is crazy. So the, the brain, the brain in our skull, is the only structure in our body that has more nerve cells. So in this way, we call the, the brain that's in our gut our second brain. And what's fascinating about it is what it does is it is managing and monitoring all aspects of digestion, everything from, okay, what's the volume of food in our stomach right now? Do we need enzymes made right now? What is the pH in our stomach right now? Do we need to adjust it? What is the relative pressure in our small intestine right now? It also is extremely important for regulation and motility, so it helps keep us regular. It also is responsible for communication with the brain in our head and is instrumental in our sort of mental and emotional health. So again here we have our digestive tract, different facets of our digestive tract impacting areas of our health that are seemingly like completely unconnected to digestion into the gut.
0: Which, that actually leads me into my next question. Um, one of the things in the book that really blew my mind, I mean, I think I read it, I think I read this paragraph, like, two or three times, and then I even, um, like, wrote it again and, like, posted it in all of my Facebook groups that I have for my clients, <laughs> because it was just so mind-blowing to me, um, and I've told my boyfriend probably, like, three times in the last, like, three days, too, just because I'm like, oh, my God, this is so crazy, Um, But one of of the things is that our digestive tract is actually responsible for 90% of the serotonin production and has more serotonin receptors than our brain does. So does this mean that the food that we put into our body can actually have an impact on depression and anxiety, and if so, how?
1: It absolutely does, and it, it does that in a couple of different ways. So let me, let me unpack this a little bit for, for you and your listeners. So here's what is so cool. As you said, the lion's share of serotonin, which is a major feel-good hormone, is made in the digestive tract. It is made by specialized cells called EC cells and terechromatin cells. And these, this is a little bit, I mean, if it is too advanced, like whatever, you can just ignore it. But these specialized cells are making your serotonin, and they are heavily influenced by the colony of beneficial bacteria that reside in our gut. Okay, so here is one way that our nutrition will directly impact at least serotonin production, receptor density, and receptor sensitivity because if you have low amounts of the beneficial bacteria that help keep the EC cells on point, you might see disruptions in serotonin production, receptor density, or receptor sensitivity. And the major way that we influence our microbiome and our gut flora is precisely through what we do and do not put into our body. So if we eat a varied diet that has different types of fiber, good good amount of protein, different types of vegetables and fruits, we are encouraging our microbiome, our good guys, to be more diverse, to be more robust, to be more on the defense against pathogens And thus, all of those subsequent ancillary benefits, like better mental emotional health, are captured that way. Conversely, if we eat a very low-fiber diet, a diet that's high in simple sugars, a diet that's high in poor-quality fats, we encourage our microbiome to be less diverse, less robust, more easily taken over. By pathogens, going back to ecology and sort of environmental biology, we know that monoculture, right, like if everything is the same, say you have all the same plants, if one bad guy comes in that your plant or your microflora, your good guys are sensitive to, it all falls. If you have a more diverse setup, whether it's in a garden or in a farm field or in your gut, you have a better shot at Sending off pathogens, and you have a much better shot at regular, excellent function. So it's, it's again, it's super cool. And then there's even another so serotonin is also, so not only is it a feel-good hormone, it's also very important for digestive function because serotonin is what initiates or helps peristalsis. And peristalsis is that like rhythmical muscular contraction that helps move food down and out, right? From the time we eat to the time we poop, we need peristalsis pushing that food through. And so a real connection there as well between serotonin and your second brain.
0: That is good. See, this stuff is just so mind blowing to me. I've always heard, you know, that. Eating too much sugar can lead to depression. You know, you see all of these um, these articles that float around about that, but you never really get into depth as to why that happens. Yeah. It's just yeah. sugar is linked to depression. Okay, yeah, <laughs> but like there's there's the why, and yeah. I just think it's like it, it really makes me makes me personally more motivated to want to eat. Healthier, so that way, yes. you know, like, okay, I will all have all of those wonderful things happen, and like, not have to, you know, rely on medication to, you know, alleviate some kind of symptoms. When really, all it comes down to is just the food that we put into <laughs> our
1: bodies. Yes, yeah. So it's, it's interesting because the gut, through the gut, is one aspect, and then also, you know, if we're eating like a very high sugar diet, a diet that is, like, high in bad quality fats, you can change your hormonal signaling, you can change the signaling of your central nervous system, you can change the signaling within your cell membranes. Our cell membranes to be, like, nice and fluid and loosey goosey and poor quality fats make them sort of, like, stiff and unreceptive. We've got, again, like, blood sugar changes, so, yeah, there's there's lots of whys to not eat high sugar, like high poor quality fat diet. That doesn't mean that there's not some like flexibility building for our systems, right? Like it's not like, okay, here you can never have like a piece of birthday cake again. You know, it's not that, but it's just when those foods are displacing the really beneficial stuff, that's when we run into some serious problems.
0: And well so now here we are. Um the time of this recording is right after Thanksgiving is before Christmas. Um and so <laughs> oh, yeah, everybody's <laughs> got Like, you know, you're going out, everybody's got holiday parties, and there's, like, way more wine being had, and, like, and, you know, there's cookies everywhere and stuff like that, and so I think this is a really great time to talk about this and your De-Stress Your Gut program, Mm -hmm. Um, and for those of you guys listening, if you are listening um, at the time of this recording, you're going to have a few days to get in on this program, um, but for those of you guys who are listening like a year later, <laughs> then this is not <laughs> going to be available. So you'll just have to get her plus. But, um, before confusing the heck out of everybody listening, I'm just going <laughs> to go ahead and move on. Um, but you have a de stress your gut program. So this would be, this would be something really great for people to have after the holidays. Um, how does, how does the stress of the holidays and the stress of all of the things, all the extra things that we're doing right now, how
1: does that impact your gut? That's a fabulous question. So again, a couple couple things. So we were talking about that second brain, right? So the yeah. second brain that lives in our gut, it has this like two-way, back and forth relationship with the brain in our head, our sort of like commander in chief. And so when we are under stress, especially if it is chronic stress or especially if there is like a history of trauma, a lot of folks will get sort of re-triggered or re-stressed during the holidays just because, you know, there's a lot of social pressure around the holidays. And so what this stress that we experience in our mind, that feeds back down into the second brain. And so when we combine that type of stress, with the stress of maybe we are consuming foods that we don't normally eat or we are over-consuming, what can begin to happen is we can see digestive change or digestive distress. It might not be permanent, but we might see things like indigestion or more reflux or more gas and bloating or even like bowel changes where, oh, maybe I'm a little constipated or maybe I'm going a little bit faster. So it's these stressors that are coming from multiple points, whether it's a social stressor, whether it is a food stressor or an overconsumption stressor. It sort of all coalesces and can translate into, you know, we kind of feel like we are busting our guts a little bit.
0: So where um, will, let's see, not.
1: <laughs> where will people be able to
0: find this program? You guys will be able to find it um, on the page that I send out to everybody who—that's um, where you're listening to this. So
1: yeah, it's, um, um, it's a simple—it's a—it's a simple link. It's just plus your. program. Um And the program opens and closes at different times throughout the year, but for your listeners right now, we're gonna open up for a little window for sure,
0: <laughs> for sure. Awesome. And then you guys make sure that you follow Jillian, too.
1: Um, she's on Instagram. What's her Instagram handle? It's at JillianTida. Okay. I love Instagram.
0: It's my favorite form of social media right now. It is mine, too, this is a whole other topic, but it's so frustrating because I follow certain people because I want to see them. And all of my stuff is not, like, I'll find stuff that's, like, from five days ago. It's like, well... I wish that I would have known about that when I was trying to find
1: oh. a place to go to dinner the other night. I'm like, come <laughs> on. <laughs> um,
0: but, yes, make sure that you follow Jillian on Instagram, and you have, and then make sure you also go to her website, which is JillianTita.com also, correct? Yes,
1: yes. And everything is there, my blog, my book. I have tons of free programs and free resources there, um, and you can get on my email list so you'll, like, never miss. You <laughs> like when a program is coming or something like that.
0: Perfect. There we go. So that way, if you're listening to this later on and you're interested in the program, you'll be able to find out about when it's going to be reopening. So while we're still, you know, talking about stress, um, in the book you go through all different kinds of digestive conditions that you see on a regular basis that are caused by stress. Um, the food that people eat, the environment that, you know, all of the things that we're consuming from the environment, you know, like any kind of things that are in our products, like shampoos and cleaners and soaps and uh, things like that. And then also just lifestyle in general. So what are like, what are the things that I want to go through a couple of things that seem like a couple of digestive conditions that seem to be the most, regular, that you constantly see. Um, I know for my
1: listeners,
0: um, one of those is IBS. Um, but if there's any other digestive conditions that you feel are the most common, then obviously, you know, elaborate on those. Well,
1: but specifically? Okay. I mean, oh, go ahead. <laughs> well, actually, I'm, I'm with you there. I think um, IBS and its, like, functional uh, derivatives, like constipation, are probably the most common digestive complaints that I see. So IBS, constipation, and then, like, gas and bloating. You know, like, just, like, generalized gas and bloating. So, you know, like, feeling distended all the time, feeling like you're, like, a stuffed faucet something. So those are probably what I see the absolute most.
0: So, you know, I feel like, you know, you... What happens is people will say, "Okay, like I'm having this problem. I'm, you know, I'm not pooping regularly." Um, they go to the doctor. say, maybe do some labs, maybe some blood work. Um, then they're diagnosed with IBS. They get a pill, and they're on their way. What's the downfall to that? And then what could be a
1: better solution? Yeah, this is a really cool question too. So back in the day. I become today. Even just a couple of years ago, even last year, and in some dogs today, used to be considered like a waste basket diagnosis, right? So, like you said, you go in, like you get all these tests, and they're like, "Oh, you don't have inflammatory bowel disease. You don't have cancer. There's no masses. There's you know, there's nothing really wrong. Oh, you have IBS, right? Now we know better. What the research has shown us now. And this is largely responsible just from the interest that we have in the microbiome. There are two main components of IBS that are found in virtually everybody with IBS, even if they're expressing it in a different way, right? So some folks that have IBS, they're more constipated. Some folks with IBS have more diarrhea, and some folks kind of oscillate back and forth between the two. No matter what folks you find yourself in, there are two things that we know are going on. One, there is some type of imbalance in the microbiome. So here we are again, back at the microbiome. Either, there's a couple different options. There may be low amounts of beneficial bacteria, there might be high amounts of what I call frenemies, and these are types of bacteria that, depending on the environment, can either be beneficial or harmful. There can be frank infections, whether with a bad bacteria, a parasite, a yeast, or fungus, or what also goes on with IBS is we see a large um, co-infection or co diagnosis with something called small intestine bacterial overgrowth. And what that is, is when even maybe normal flora or bad guys go up and colonize the small intestine where they don't belong. They belong in the large intestine. So all of these different, uh, you know, categories all fall under a very broad umbrella that we call dysbiosis, right? Dysbiosis, sort of like an imbalance of your microbiome. This is a key factor in irritable bowel syndrome and absolutely must be addressed. The second major factor is back to our second brain, and this will be intuitive for folks who now understand sort of what the second brain does. There is some dysfunction in the second brain, and that makes sense because the second brain remember, is very important for our motility and our regularity. And, of course, if we are struggling with diarrhea or constipation or both, that is a motility issue. And so we've got to address both of those pieces. That has to be, like, the main thrust of treatment. And that essentially is what the de Your Gut program is built on. I actually built it for folks with IBS. The other thing that's neat is that there are now actually blood tests that you can get at your doctor's office or through specialized labs that will rule in or rule out IBS. And for your listeners, these lab tests is called anti-CDTB and anti vinculin and one is a protein that shows up in IBS, and then the other one is a, is a molecule that's made from those imbalanced or bad bacteria, and these tests are anywhere from 83 to 95% sensitive, so they capture a large majority of folks with IBS, but as you know, it's mostly diagnosed via symptoms, right? But now mm-hmm. we've got a blood test. We've even got a blood test, and we actually can do stool testing to assess the health of the gut flora as well. So those are cool developments in the IBS world.
0: Wow. Okay. That's definitely come a really long way from, you
1: know, back when
0: when I was, like, first learning about it. So that's awesome. And then what are other solutions that you could recommend maybe that wouldn't just, you know, that would be simple things that you can do on your own?
1: Specifically for IBS? Yeah. What I would what I would suggest for people, and it's interesting because, like, a lot of my recommendations can be applied in a wide variety of circumstances. But for IBS, some of the basics are until we get symptoms under control, I do recommend a lower FODMAP diet. And FODMAPs are an acronym that stands for fermentable oligosaccharides, disaccharides, monosaccharides, and polyols, which is just a fancy way to say certain carbohydrates and fibers that are fermentable, a.k.a. gas-producing, to an imbalanced microbiome. So we reduce those foods, and then we can strategically challenge them back in. By doing this, you are relieving... A lot of these symptoms of distension, gas, bloating, belching, wind, all of those things. And you're also reducing pain because when your intestines are full of gas, that's very painful. And then you are also starving out bacteria that are fermenting these compounds and that are probably not the best bacteria to have on board. This will give a chance for your better bacteria, your good guys, to repopulate and push them out. And what's cool is it's sort of a tangent, but your bacteria want to work for you. They are heavily invested in maintaining their status in your gut. So they actually act like little guard dogs where they are hunting and killing bad bacteria. I mean, it's, it's actually fascinating because they're very interested in maintaining, again, their landscape, their balance. That not only brings you the greatest health, but that also brings them the greatest health because, well, that's who, who is there. That's who shows up, and that's who's in control. So we reduce high fat foods, and then also we focus on de-stressing uh, behavior, like doing when you eat, <laughs> chewing your food, going for walks, and making sure that you go to sleep. So there's a lot of like very basic things that we can do to help both the microbiome and our second brain.
0: And this is also something too that you know she goes into into more detail in the book um, with different just very very basic solutions of things that we can do. Um, Like one of your things is gardening.
1: Oh my gosh, I love gardening. (laughs) As you can see from my Instagram feed. (laughs) <laughs> exactly, yeah. and you know everybody. You know everybody talks about what's the benefits of yoga,
0: and you know speaking of the specific pra- practice of the asanas of yoga, but yoga doesn't necessarily have to be going into a classroom and practicing yoga. We I've always said that different. Everybody has their own kind of yoga. So for my boyfriend, his yoga is cooking, and um, you know for my grandfather, his yoga was mowing his yard. So doing yes. things like that can also be really, really helpful in the de-stressing, too. So and to make more of that. So in well, the book. And that's what
1: and, and that's a fabulous point, Sarah, because you know, not everyone enjoys gardening, right? So it's like what what do we all like to do as individuals? What relaxing activities? And by the way, this is a side note, relaxation is not inebriation. So if you're like I like to go get drunk with my friends, that's not relaxation. Really, that's not relaxation. <laughs> But what are things, what are behaviors that we like to do that kind of, like, nourish us, like, internally, right? Like, fill our cups. That might be, like, walking your dog or, like, spending time with friends or, like, it's, like, find what works for you and play those strengths and then carve out the time to actually actually do it on a, on a regular basis. You know, we, we neglect ourselves very much, and I think we don't even realize half the time how much we're actually neglecting ourselves.
0: I know, exactly, especially this time of the year, <laughs> you know, with the holidays and everything. Everybody's really busy, so it's just important mm-hmm. to, like, keep those things in our calendars and keep those things planned. But I want to talk about one other thing that I feel like a lot of people I know personally struggle with, and that's um, acid reflux or heartburn. Yes. Even yes. myself personally, Um I do not do well with turkey boards. I love them, but I never do well with them. But, um, you know, it's like we all have certain foods that we know might shut us off on occasion, but what about the people who suffer from this regularly? Um, You know, being on medication long-term for this, you have discussed multiple, at least in the book, you know, how actually it can be harmful. So what would be a better solution than being on medication for heartburn and acid reflux, you know, for the long term?
1: Yeah, that's a great – I encourage everybody that is on these medications to do their best with their doctor to taper off. When, um, When these medications were originally approved by the FDA, their maximum usage was only for nine months. And now, people show up all the time at our clinic that have been on these things for decades. You know, they are prescribed like candy, and there's never any discussion about when folks are going to come off of them, and that's too bad because there is a laundry list of negative side effects associated with them, including anemias, increased risk for infection, osteopenia, osteoporosis, thinning of the bones, and then most recently here, I don't remember exactly when this study came out, um, I posted it, I feel like just a few weeks or months ago, about overall increased mortality with these medications. And so these are medications that are not, it's not innocuous. There are no free lunches in biology, so to speak, so there's always a price to pay. And I think it's very important for consumers of these drugs to have their eyes wide open to the natural, to the consequences of their long-term use. And I am not anti-drug or anything like that. These drugs can be used appropriately to break a cycle. But to get to the deeper, like the deeper pieces of how do we begin to resolve this, we look at the, the framework that I use for virtually, again, like every condition, which is, looking at our nutrition, looking at what I call digestive fire, which is our digestive ability, utilizing the health of the microbiome again, right? Here we are the microbiome again. Looking at the lining of the GI tract top to bottom, but you know, specifically in the stomach, and then the second brain again. So we know, so now we take it back to the top, we know that there are general triggers for reflux, right? Like like coffee and spicy foods and citrus and tomatoes, these are sort of known problematic foods with reflux, right? But we also know that overconsumption, like eating too much at one time, bending over after eating, laying down immediately after eating, these can also be issues too. So we need to, beyond like avoiding common triggers, because there's plenty of folks who have reflux and can still, I don't know, eat salsa or drink coffee, finding our own unique triggers, as you did, right, with the charcuterie board. Not everybody, I mean, there are folks with reflux that can have those charcuterie boards, so that's very important. The other piece is looking at our digestive ability, and I will often supplement with enzymes with these folks because when we are suppressing acid, we actually are not breaking down our foods appropriately and we are not absorbing certain minerals and vitamins and that's why you'll see things like anemia and low energy and increased susceptibility to to infections. Also, we need to put things in place that might help heal the lining of the stomach if there's inflammation there or gastritis, but also protect the esophagus from those you know, icky feelings of, like, burning and pressure. I love to use a compound called sodium alginate or alginic acid, and what this is is just a little capsule that when you swallow and it mixes with the contents of your stomach, it forms like a gelatinous raft, and this raft slopes up and sort of tucks right under your lower esophageal sphincter, which is sort of opening inappropriately and letting that acid and like stomach contents reflux up and are generating the symptoms of burning and reflux. So it helps prevent acids and food from refluxing up and then also gives that lower esophageal sphincter a little bit of a workout. So I use this in folks as we taper down these acid-blocking drugs. There's other nutrients that help build, you know, or repair the lining of the GI tract, including the stomach. And for that, I really like, for the stomach specifically, I really like glutamine and zinc carnosine and mastic gum and slippery elm. But goodness, you know, there there's lots of them. And then lastly, you know, I like to make sure that folks are doing their activities to help them de-stress. You know, know, we've, we've, like, kind of repeated ourselves a number of times, but stress has been shown in scientific studies, so this this isn't me, like, being all woo-woo and all of that, stress will make literally every digestive symptom worse. It has been shown from everything to reflux and heartburn to irritable bowel syndrome to inflammatory bowel disease makes everything worse. So that's sort of just like a quick run-through of the, of the framework and how we would apply that specifically to heartburn and acid reflux. And then for those
0: of you guys who really want a deeper look at acid reflux and all of those different supplements that she's talking about, is in her book. So I highly recommend reading that. So she's got a whole chapter on acid reflux. Your book also has the 28-Day Gut Restoration Program. Um, yes. That's something that if you, it's not just going to be open for a five day window. It's not open in you know at specific times. This is for anybody. Um, so it's in the book. Definitely check it out. Um, Julian, can you give us a review of that and also to you, just curious um, why twenty eight days is the magic number?
1: <laughs> yeah. So four weeks. So it's like twenty eight days, four weeks. What I've noticed is. <laughs> can make an enormous difference in digestive function in a short amount of time because people get freaked out, right? They're like, I don't want to like, you know, be on this crazy diet for like months and months. And so what the Gut Restoration Program is, is a targeted elimination diet, which removes what I call a lot of the big culprits, right? Like including gluten and dairy and all of that. Luckily, my beautiful and talented co-author, Jeanette Bessinger has created recipes and a 2018 meal plan to go along with that. So we have this elimination diet, and then also we supplement with things like digestive enzymes to make sure folks are breaking down their food. Because if we're not breaking down our food, that means we're more likely to have gas and bloating, It means we're more likely to have intestinal pain as our gut flora ferment these things. We are more likely to provoke our immune system because the immune system is attracted to large unbroken proteins. And then we are less likely to optimally absorb our food because our small intestine wants everything in teeny tiny particles. So we'll supplement with some type of digestive enzyme. We will supplement with probiotics, and then we will add in a gut repair complex that, depending on the situation, will have some of those nutrients that I just recommended. And by doing the enzymes and the probiotics and the gut repair, in the middle of the elimination diet, what you're doing is you're giving your body a break, like a rest. From potentially problematic foods while at the same time shoring up all of these other really important factors for optimal digestion. So you get a great amount of symptom relief in a relatively short amount of time, and then at the end of that period, you'll be able to turn around and challenge some of the, or all, you'll challenge all of those foods back in that you have eliminated to determine if they create or exacerbate symptoms in you, or if your symptoms were caused by just simply too many things being out of balance in your gut. And with all of those gut restoration practices, you've corrected those imbalances, and now, oh goodness, you know, you actually can tolerate more food. So that's sort of it in a nutshell. And that is the approach I use in clinical practice. That's the premise that, all of my, you know, free um, resources and free trainings and my paid programs, they're all based on that framework of of targeting and taking care of all of those facets of digestion. And my book, Natural Solutions for Digestive Health, has a uh, questionnaire in there to help folks focus in on what area they might be, what area might be their weakest link. So it can be very, very targeted to individuals, even though the framework, you know, the framework we apply and then we can tailor and target to the, to the unique individual.
0: And one of the other things that I want to add about that
1: too, um, I, have work, I
0: have worked with this one client who felt like, so she on her own decided that she was going to eliminate um, gluten, dairy, uh, processed sugars, and soy. And she, you know, she felt really overwhelmed and felt like, you know, this is, it's in everything. And to an extent, yeah, you, you will find a lot of those things. There, it seems like there's soy in, in so much, um, you yes. but, you know, I kind of, I said to her, I was like, okay, so think about it this way. I'm like, okay, pick whatever vegetables that you want to eat. Like, let's go with all of the colors. let's do, let's do peppers, let's do mushrooms, let you um, a fig and zucchini and just pick a whole bunch of different vegetables and then pick whatever, pick a protein, pick your meat. And then let's add, you know, if um, I can't remember specifically if your program um, allows rice. I know for her she was fine with doing rice. Okay, so now we're going to add in like a little bit of rice or let's add in a little bit of sweet potato as um, something else that I know that she was fine with. And it's like, okay, actually if you think about it like that, then it's not as overwhelming as you might think it is when you first look at it.
1: Yes. So two comments on that. One is that was a huge reason why we wanted like meal plans and recipes so we could say, okay, if you're feeling overwhelmed, like this is literally exactly what heat that will take into consideration every food that we have eliminated. So there's that sort of like generic answer. But then the second piece is I'm a huge uh, advocate for meeting people where they're at. So if folks truly are overwhelmed, right, and maybe don't have someone like you to, like, coach them through, like, the nuances of that, we can start with eliminating just one thing, like, just one food item, right, right? So maybe they just eliminate dairy and they see how that goes. They keep everything else the same and they eliminate dairy and they do the other gut restoration stuff and they just see. Hmm. Then okay, maybe that one didn't work. Maybe now we go to. Hmm, it takes longer, right? You, you know, it takes longer if we put an elimination diet all up. But it also can we also can utilize that in folks who are feeling a little bit overwhelmed. So I will say, like, not everybody has to eliminate every single thing every single time. When you're writing a book, you have to write for, like, the broadest, you know, it's like we're casting the widest net, right? So if folks are feeling overwhelmed, then I say, all right, well, what is one thing you eat regularly that has a high probability of being problematic that you are willing to do a temporary, you know, four-week experiment with? You know, framing it that way, like we get very in our heads about like, oh my God, I can't have that. When really it's like, you can have it, no one's holding a gun to your head, right? Like, you can't eat that. But what we're looking for is what are the foods or items that are creating consequences and distress in your body? And once you can find those and have a really good handle on that, then I can't eat that because I don't eat that. And I don't need that because I don't want to deal with the consequences it gives me. Like, I don't want to deal with the bloating. I don't want to deal with the constipation. So I think coaching people up on that way, right, where very easily we go into, like, deprivation mode. But I think that can't plus don't is also very important. And then also emphasizing how temporary it is. Like, this is just a four-week interval, so a little experiment, not a one-week street. Well, that
0: leads us perfectly into the next question that I was going to ask you, and is there some kind of like a gut restoration, like light version, or something that somebody could try that would help them gain more self-awareness for the different foods that they're putting into their body? You know, you mentioned doing, let's do four weeks without Gary, okay, let's see let's yes. see what happens when we reintroduce Gary, or let's do four yes. weeks without yes. gluten, okay, let's see what happens when we reintroduce it. But what else would you like? To, would you add on to that for somebody that would want to do like a gut restoration? Like,
1: really, I would start just there. I would start with just the piece that felt least overwhelming. Now, of course, people could, you know, think about on a weekly basis, like, okay, what are the foods that I eat over and over and over again, and how does that compare to the foods that are known as common problems, right? So, if someone is eating. If someone is eating, you know, cream of wheat for breakfast and they're having a sandwich for lunch and then they're having, like, you know, pasta and chicken and broccoli for supper, they're probably going to want to think about a gluten elimination first versus anything else. But if that feels too overwhelming, then you kind of go for the second one. Like, all right, so maybe they're eating dairy. It's it's all about finding what is not going to overwhelm people because, as you know, if people get overwhelmed, they're, going, they're not going to do it. They're going to stop. So it's all about creating that sort of ease and comfort and convenience for folks. I would keep the supplementation the same. I would keep it the same. Um, so you would keep supplementation the same? Mm-hmm. What do you mean? Yes. Okay. Like for, for a gut restoration life. So still enzymes, still maybe supplemental acid, if that's indicated, still probiotics, and still gut repair. It's just that the elimination piece, in terms of eliminating food, that's going to be what takes a little bit longer, right? So instead of doing 28 days, well, maybe they'll do, you know, 28 days of dairy, and then they'll do, you know, maybe a couple weeks of gluten, you know, sorting that sorting
0: that out. Okay, I gotcha. Because um, I definitely, you know, I feel like that can be a little bit more approachable for yes. some people, especially, because we have, we have life things that come up, so, you know, some people just aren't going to feel comfortable saying, okay, well, I'm going to eliminate all these things for 20 because I've got this coming up and that coming up, and it's just, we." I just always, like you said, I like to kind of meet people where they are as well, uh, Absolutely. so that, that can be more approachable for some people. Absolutely, and, then, and
1: I, I will say one more ahead. thing, the more, the more in distress people are in, like the more uncomfortable they are, I've noticed they are more willing to eat more food. There seems to be like this direct connection. So it's like how, how stressed out are people with their digestive distress? You know, if someone is, you know, only pooping once every 14 days, you know, they're going to be more likely. They're going to be more likely to go in for a larger elimination at once. And that's neither better or worse than someone who's like, yeah, I want to maybe check out if I have these sensitivities. So I just really want to highlight that there's no, like, one rigid way it can be tailored for virtually anybody. Gotcha. That's, I mean, that's the way that it has,
0: like you said, like, the way that it's written in the book is definitely that broad net. so... Um, yes. doing something as the individual. You know, if you have somebody that can help you, then that's awesome. But if you don't, you know, just, you know, and also, like, write, I feel like writing diaries, like, this is how I felt after can also be really helpful for people, too, um, to create more self-awareness. Because not everybody is going to be as self-aware as like you and I are. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, doing an
1: elimination diet of any type, it helps you raise your self-awareness. And a lot of the de-stressing activities that we've talked about, that also helps increase our self-awareness and self-introspection. And interestingly enough, that does two things. That, like, calms our brains, our second brain and the brain in our head, and it helps us draw conclusions faster so we suffer less. Yeah, I, yeah you're
0: absolutely right. I definitely, like, I never really thought about that, but you're, you're definitely right there for sure. Yeah. Um, so then, all right, one of the things that I have found that, like, people might be w- less willing to give us is alcohol, and <laughs> even, like, the healthiest of alcohol, um, red wine and tequila, and those are the ones that pop out in my head. Um, what, <laughs> what kind of impact does those have on the gut? Because you don't go too much into that. Um, in the book, so I'm curious about that, and then what are different things that you can do to undo the damage from wine, tequila, or any other kind of alcohol? Well,
1: it's interesting, because alcohol itself, so alcohol is a poison, yeah, but it's very dose-dependent, so things like binge drinking are absolutely just detrimental and, and just not good at all, particularly to the small intestine. It increases intestinal permeability. It can disrupt the microbiome. However, not alcohol is not featured in the elimination diet because not everybody has to give it up. So we've got alcohol itself, and then in something like red wine, there are things like sulfates, and histamines in them, so Mm -hmm. folks can be sensitive to those. So a moderate drinker, which is like one or two glasses a day for women, or two to three for a man, is not necessarily going to be harmful to the gut. So if someone's doing the elimination diet and they're still drinking red wine every day and they're not getting anywhere, at that point, that would be when I would say, okay, you know, cut alcohol out too. But it's the same thing, like, with coffee. Like, you know, I don't have everybody off with coffee. So there's all, there are, there are definitely foods that are in this gray in-between area. So as you were saying earlier, like, for some folks, like, you know, coffee is devastating to their heartburn. And it's like, that's their trigger. They know what it is. So it's kind of like we cast that broad net first with the, the more commonly known triggers, things like gluten and berries, and we see how that does. If we're not getting anywhere, then we look elsewhere. But in my experience, like clients that only have a couple drinks a week and are not in, like, dire digestive distress can actually handle that. Bing drinking is different. Um, and then things like histamine and sulfite sensitivities are different. But for, like, your average sort of person, it doesn't necessarily have to be a strict alcohol elimination. Now, I know you can get on the natural blogosphere, and you'll find plenty of people who disagree with me. And I'm just basing my opinion on what sort of the research says and then what my clinical experience has been over the last 10 years. And I know that's not, like, a very clear answer. It's kind of more nuanced, but that's the, that's the truth. My famous uh, it depends answer. <laughs> <laughs> the, anno- the annoying
0: answer. <laughs> I know, I know, and I—that's uh, the answer I give to everybody too. It's like, well, it really depends, you know. What does is, what is your body say? And well, you know, yep. <laughs> is there anything that you can recommend that people could do? Let's say, you know, you do go out and you have like a couple too many tequila and sodas. Is there something uh-huh. that you can that you can do to kind of like undo the damage from that?
1: Yep. Well, this is, a, this is a perfect this is a perfect subject for the you know us kind of gearing up for Christmas, right? So, about drinking, there are a couple things. One, if you know you're going to be drinking that day, you want to make sure that you're pretty hydrated. So, I will actually have folks try to drink like at least a liter and a half to two liters of water before they even go out drinking. The other thing is for every drink you have to also have a glass of water after, like water or sparkling water. This helps you pace yourself and it helps you like from not being hungover. If you've already over-involved, again, water, 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 and then B vitamins can be helpful. Oh, also, let me back up one more time. As you are out partying or at the cocktail party or the holiday party and you're drinking, if you are drinking alcohol, I don't recommend eating tons of desserts because consuming sugar plus alcohol is going to increase your chances for being hungover. And let's face it, hangovers, once you are over 25, hangovers are the worst. So that you know, I, I, my goal in life is to, like, never be hungover again, like, for the rest of my life. It's just not something that I want to deal with ever again. Um, so that would be – so if you, are, if you know you're going to be drinking – Hydration, maybe some B vitamins beforehand, not mixing sugar and alcohol together and having a glass of water in between every drink you have. And then post also hydration, minerals, and vitamins. Well, so and then obviously one more question about this too. Um,
0: that I actually that I get pretty frequently. Um, staying away from the super sugary drink. Um, Mm -hmm. that's a giving, but what would you consider to be like the best options?
1: So, so it would be things like champagne and white wine and red wine and tequila and vodka and gin. So, it's like a vodka and soda, like a vodka soda, gin and tonic, tequila with a little bit of soda and lime. I'm not a huge fan of, like, mixed food drinks, you know, martinis, things like that. You can do, like, plain and dry martinis, but you, you are absolutely right. Like, the more sugar you're adding in, especially to hard alcohol, you're just asking for feeling awful in the morning.
0: One of the things in the paleo solution, Rob Wolf, but he talked about the um, NorCal margaritas. So tequila, soda, and um, a bunch of limes, and then like you mm-hmm. just you know, squeeze in your own lime from actual limes. So yeah, that so that's like one of the ones fun. that she recommends. Yeah, um, and then you also wine also to work in your opinion. So that's yes. good because we have to we have to be realistic. We have to you know not tell people like okay, well you just have to stop drinking. <laughs> like right, you
1: know, yeah, you know, we,
0: we all know. live in a world, right? Yeah, Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And so for the people who want to start, you know, playing around with natural solutions for their digestion, um, what three baby steps would you recommend? Just to keep yourself in. Yeah.
1: So the three things I would recommend, one would be, and this is going to, you're going to like laugh a little bit, but one is to kind of mind our manners when we eat. And that is to sit down when we eat look at our food, actually have an experience with it, put our laptops and cell phones away, slow down while we eat, chew our food well until it's soft, and just add a little bit of mindfulness into our eating. And what that is going to do is it's going to increase your digestive fire, right? Your brain will be able to signal to your second brain, like, hey, we have food coming in, make enzymes, make acid leave some bile into the stomach so you're going to be able to break down your food better also by eating slowly you're less likely to overeat and overeating is a huge cause of digestive distress by minding our manners we're also going to have a calmer second brain because we're not like running around eating fast talking with our mouthfuls, like super distracted by like our I P feed or what have you so the first thing is just simply minding our manners, right, listening to our grandmothers. The second thing would be to be, begin to think about paying attention to how we feel after we eat certain foods. So, okay, I just smashed a bowl of pasta. Do I have heart palpitations? Am I getting tired? Am I getting a headache? Am I hungry an hour later? Do I feel like I need to go lay down? So begin to pay attention to how certain foods react in our bodies including, you know, healthy foods, like, okay, if I eat a, if I eat a salad, does that tear me up? Do I see undigested food in my stool? These are all clues. And then the last thing, you know, something I've been super into lately, is getting a squatty potty for your home. Squatty potties help get your anatomy in the right position for a bowel movement so you struggle less with constipation and incomplete evacuation and orientation of our anatomy is extremely important because our in the u.s like our toilets are very very high and we kind of our feet kind of like dangle down our knees should actually be up above our hips when we're having a bowel movement so i would say those three baby steps that really have nothing to do with changing our diet or you know taking a bunch of supplements. Like, those are all very more internal, sort of, like, behavioral things that uh, we can think about and look at. And that would be where I would suggest folks start.
0: And you don't even have to spend money on any of that stuff, because even with the fly potty, if you have um, some kind of, like, a, like even a waste basket in your bathroom, yes. you can just yes. turn it upside down. I mean, if you take a out. <laughs> so that would be very stressful to have to clean up all your <laughs> So, but just turn that upside down so that way you'll feed up higher. So literally three very simple things that you can do that don't even cost any money.
1: Yes. And, you know, we can add in a bonus one, which is make sure you're not sleep-deprived. People really uh, underestimate the importance of sleep, and sleep is a foundational aspect of health. And if you don't have all, like, that dialed in, then it's going to be really hard to completely eradicate digestive distress. I know we pride ourselves on, like, being able, you know, I can work on five hours of sleep. Well, that can really catch up to us when we do it for months on end. Oh, no. That, like, I I cannot,
0: uh-uh. Like, even if I do not sleep right, like, my stomach will be will be messed up if I do not mm-hmm. sleep well the night before. And that is just from one bad night's sleep. And also, too, for you guys that want to talk more about the effects of lack of sleep, listen to my interview with Dave, because he goes into it and how much that affects your hormones. So, yes, yeah, yeah. sleep. <laughs> <laughs>
1: okay. No.
0: All right. Well, Jillian, that those are my questions. All the questions that I have for to you today. Um, do you have anything else that you wanted to add to this?
1: you know, I think we covered so much ground. I hope that folks aren't overwhelmed, I and mean, I just really appreciate you having me on today.
0: Thank you so much. Thank you so much for being on and Thank you for writing this
1: book. I mean,
0: um. I I feel, like, so enlightened and so much more motivated to take care of my body. You know, it's not just, like, going to the gym and lifting weights and then going and running sprints. It's like, okay, I'm I want to sit down and, like, make vegetables and eat them all the time now because I read this book. So
1: oh, that's amazing. That makes me amazing, thank
0: you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well good. And for all of you guys who are listening, if you haven't read the book, read the book. It's so good. It's so enlightening and so educational, so and motivating. So Um, definitely check it out. And make sure that you go to um, Jillian's website, com, and follow her on Instagram as well. Um, And check out the gut restoration program and the gut de-stress program as well if you guys are having any of these problems. So, um, Jillian, thank you so much again for being on. And um, thank you guys all for listening. And Jillian... Have a wonderful rest of your afternoon. (laughs) Thank you so much, Kira.
1: All right. Thank you, guys.